So good evening everyone, my name is Robin Archer, I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics and I'm very pleased to welcome you to our the very last lecture of this year's Ralph Miliband series um, on turbulent times. Next year we'll have a, a new series on a different theme and I'm particularly delighted um, to be able to welcome our speaker tonight, Yogendra Yardav. The, the Miliband program <coughs> prides itself on bringing both eminent scholars and influential public figures. And in Yogendra, we have both in one person. Um, his scholarly influence goes back, well, at least 30 years, probably, probably a bit more, actually. There you are. Um, he was professor of political science at the Punjab University in Chandigarh. He was the convener of a research project on comparative democracy at the CSDS, Centre for the Study of Developing Societies, and later a senior fellow at that institute, a very um, fruitful and interesting, intellectually interesting uh, place. And for over 20 years, he's been a major public intellectual. Um, those of you who've been, who are from India or who've lived there will know that he's widely recognised as a, if not the leading election expert, um, and his, his observations about elections over many years are marked, I think, having listened to them, in being underwritten always by careful research and a sort of, uh, and, and actually an invaluable series of systematic uh, election surveys that, that, that make India um, accessible to, to wide scholarly interest. Well, he's also published numerous articles and a number of books, both in English and in Hindi. He's written about uh, democracy in South Asia. He's written about electoral politics in India and its various states. And he's uh, written comparative treatments of different democratic regimes. In 2009, his work was recognised by the International Political Science Association, who gave him an award for his work on the politics of developing societies. So that's the influential scholar, and yet throughout all that time, he's also been a political activist with commitments, I think, that hail from a broadly Indian socialist tradition. Uh, many of you will know that more recently, between 2011 and 2015, um, he became a very prominent figure in the insurgent arm Admi party, which looked, for a period at least, like it might start to reshape uh, Indian politics, especially in the Delhi area. Well, relations at the top of that party became fraught, I think is one way of putting it. Um, and Yogendra and a number of his colleagues have now poured their energy into a new organisation, the Swaraj India Party. So you can see that we've got someone who's got this incredible scholarly um, base and at the same time this uh, active role in public life. And I think it's a unique combination, and it will give us a chance to hear tonight about turbulent times in India. Yogendra is going to speak for about 45, 50 minutes, something like that, and then we're going to have time for questions and discussion. But before we do any of that, can I ask you to join me in welcoming our speaker, Yogendra Yadav. Thank you. Thank you, Robin, for that 
very generous introduction. Delighted to be here. Uh, very honored to be in this institution. Ever since I shifted from being an academic to a political activist, I haven't had many occasions to visit academic institutions, to be part of seminars, things I used to do um, almost every day. Uh, but when this invitation from LSE arrived, I immediately said yes. Uh, one, because Robin is an old friend, something he didn't mention in the introduction. <laughs> old friend uh, and comrade. Uh, also because uh, LSC has an old connection to the Indian freedom struggle. Uh, Harold Lasky uh, wrote a letter for someone who I call, think someone who has inspired me a lot, Ramanohar Lohia. He was imprisoned, and Harold Lasky wrote to save him in a sense. Uh, but also for a coincidence uh, that connects to Ralph Miliband. Uh, I'm no Marxist, have never been one. Uh, but Ralph Miliband was the first Marxist thinker that I was exposed to and began appreciating, uh, began learning from. Uh, this is 1981. I had gone to Jawaharlal Nehru University, uh, which those days, for some time even after that, was a very left-wing university. So we were introduced to Marxist theories of state, and the first book that I was asked to read was Ralph Miliband's uh, State in Capitalist Society. Uh, some of you would recall there was something called the Miliband-Polanza's debate, uh, which was very hot those days. Uh, Nikos Polanza's, influenced by Althusser, was uh, represented what, he, what was called the structuralist perspective. So he reviewed Miliband's book and said, no, you've got it completely wrong. The capitalist society is governed by the structural logic, not by who happens to be governing. So Polanza has represented the structuralist perspective. And Miliband, for some reason, I thought somewhat unfairly, was called instrumentalist approach to capitalism. I must confess those days, I was influenced by Polanzas. Polanzas was clever, he was subtle, he was elegant. It's much later that it dawned upon me that uh, elegance can actually cloud careful argument, that what is clever need not be valid. As I got more into practical political life and start, also as I started trying to make sense of the Indian democratic experience, it became clearer to me that the contingency of political life, the possibilities politics opened up all the time, and the dangers it opened you to all the time, was something Miliband was far more alive uh, at that point. So in a sense, this is my opportunity to pay tribute to Ralph Miliband, the scholar, the activist. And thanks for giving me this opportunity, Robin. When I was asked to speak on turbulence, what kind of turbulence should I speak about? 
for me, the obvious choice then was to speak about democracy. What else do I know? What else can I talk about? Um, sorry, do I need to get this to work differently? Uh, can you just help me to move this? I'm not as bad as Robin, but uh, I don't quite know this. <laughs> uh, so I... Sorry for the disruption. So, when I was asked to speak on turbulence, I thought, what else but democracy? We live in difficult times all over the world. This little map shows you democracy indexed by Economist Intelligence Unit. Not that I put much store by these indices. But this just to, just to make one small point, between 90, 2016 and 2017, as many as 89 countries were downgraded in terms of their democratic ratings. Just to give you a sense of what we mean when we talk about shrinking, stepping back, crisis, slide in democracy. That's all over. Today is not the occasion to, for me to talk about what's happening all over the world in a certain retreat of democracy, that sort of buoyance and confidence that there was in 1990s all over the world, there was a march of democracy. That's certainly no longer the case. This is no longer the case in India too. It's a difficult time for democracy in India too. That's what I would wish to focus on partly because I don't know anything else. Also because I've spoken all over the world about India's democratic experience. I've analyzed it, and yes, I've celebrated it. I've argued that uh, Indian democracy succeeded precisely by not following the Western script. I argued that the manner in which India handled the diversity issue has lessons for the rest of the world. So having celebrated, having claimed big things about Indian democracy, I can't possibly keep quiet when things are not right, when something goes wrong with that model. I must speak. I must speak as honestly as I did earlier. So the questions I wish to focus on are one, how does this global trend play out in India, especially since 2014? 2014 is the year when a new regime comes to power in India. What can we learn from the current challenge to the ideas of a democratic and diverse India? And finally, something very specific. Does this demand rethinking the idea of India as a state nation? What is state nation? I'll come back to that. So, so I would not review the entire range of India's democratic experience. I would not talk too much about all kinds of challenges and threats. I use one specific lens, namely the issue of diversity. And how do we make sense of that? That's, my, that's a limited uh, uh, purpose of the talk today. And the pretext for that is a misjudgment something I was involved in, something I thought hard about and got completely wrong. 
In 2011, uh, I was involved in writing a book called Crafting State Nations, India and Other Multinational Democracies. It came from the Johns Hopkins University Press, 2011. For me, this is not to advertise the book so much. It's seven years old now. Uh, it is, of course, an occasion to remember the two great co-authors I was involved in writing the books, who more than co-authors were also teachers, the great comparative theorists, Alfred Steppen and Juan Linz. Uh, sadly, both of them are no more. Since the publication of the book, Juan Linz passed away in 2013 and Alfred Steppen in 2017. This is an occasion to remember how much they taught someone like me. But more than that, I wish to begin by recalling something awkward, something embarrassing. In that book, we talk about Gujarat and its possible implication for Indian democracy. We kept thinking about it as we were, this, this book was almost a 10-year project. We wrote a series of articles finally culminating into the book. And as we wrote this book, which was principally about India's experience of diversity, we kept thinking about Gujarat and what it could possibly mean for the Indian enterprise. These are two critical pieces of judgment in the book. It said, and this particular, this first quote is actually from an article in 2005, which we re-quote in the book. It said, in fact, far from the Gujarat program, ushering in a new triumphal period of Hindu nationalism and BJP growth, it may have helped set into motion countervailing powers, many of them coming from state-nation values and practices. So, after the 2002 riots, programs, which were targeted at Muslims, so this anti-Muslim violence, which finally resulted in BJP in that state, getting another popular mandate. That's what troubled us very much. And our provisional judgment after 2002 was actually it's led to countervailing forces. Reviewing the period after 2002, we then wrote, uh, the electoral outcome and political development since 2002 provides strong evidence to negate the worry that Gujarat was going to be replicated across the country and thus be the beginning of the end of state-nation enterprise in India. While Modi is still chief minister of Gujarat as of this writing, in hindsight we know that fears of the Gujarat model, here the word Gujarat model refers to the politics of it, not the economic argument that came up much later. Gujarat model being replicated all over the country were highly exaggerated. Indeed, Instead of becoming the launching pad for BJP's rise to becoming a natural party of governance, Gujarat proved to be a turning point for the BJP's political decline. This is what we said in 2011. I say we, but I should take principal blame for that because my colleagues sitting in the US, although we were debating that very, very thoroughly, but it was principally my judgment which they said must be right. This is 2011, and look at what happened in 2014. BJP, I'm sorry, the figures here are not correct. 
the BJP, the, the saffron here is the BJP. The, the first one shows the Lok Sabha seats that they won, uh, which also includes their allies. So from 116, they went on to get 282 seats in the Indian parliament on their own, out of 543, not 274, but actually 282, much above the majority mark. And this was after nearly three decades that a party got a, sing a single party got a clear majority. With allies, there were 336 out of 543. Spectacular victory. This victory was followed by a series of other victories in state assembly elections. The, the next map shows you BJP's uh, triumph across India. So it shows where BJP stands as of today with one minor mistake. I don't know if I can point it. Yeah, this, this particular state, Andhra, is actually should not be Safran. I'm sorry, this should be more like green because the party has walked out of that alliance. So other than this one belt that you can see running from Kerala, Tamil Nadu, Andhra, Telangana, Odisha, and Bengal, it's all, almost all Safran including the Northeast, which is very, very unusual because BJP virtually had no presence here. So this is what the BJP manages to do. What the BJP has done in the meanwhile can be captured by saying that they exercise hegemony. BJP is the new hegemon. And when I say hegemony, I mean it in three senses of the term. One, they're electorally dominant. Two, they exercise coercive power of an unprecedented kind. Three, and that's hard for everyone to accept, but that is true. They have a certain cultural, ideological, moral legitimacy. And it is a combination of coercion and legitimacy that makes hegemony. Uh, this is where the BJP is today. Electoral dominance is not hard to understand. As I mentioned, after 2014, BJP has expanded uh, as a political party. BJP has extended its support in areas which it earlier did not have much support in. Uh, and even the belt that I pointed out where they do not dominate right now, they have actually expanded their vote share. Places like Tripura, where three years ago, if someone asked you and told you that BJP was going to win Tripura, you would say, forget it, have a cup of tea, go out, you know, uh, but they have won. So uh, there is electoral dominance in expansion and deepening of popular support. Even in Bengal, BJP unlikely to win, but is increasing its support in a way which is unthinkable before. This electoral dominance is guided by perhaps the most formidable election machine that India has ever seen. I actually can't think of any other democracy, but then I could be wrong there. I would, it would be very, very hard to think of this kind of a formidable election machine anywhere in the world that Mr. Amit Shah drives right now. And when I say election machine, I mean a combination of organizational machine, which goes right down to what is called Panna Pramukh, 
the voters list, I mean, the, the, the lowest unit is the voting booth, which typically has, uh, which is typically a list of, say, 20 pages. The BJP has been able to find a person who is in charge of each one of those pages in each electoral booth. That's the depth of uh, organizational might that we are speaking about. There is uh, strategy, including all fair and all unfair means. And there is propaganda machine of a kind which is unprecedented. The amount of money, resource, everything else is which is put into this propaganda machine is unimaginable. I mean, at least I haven't seen anything of that kind ever before in India. That's electoral dominance. Then there's coercive power, which is partly legal, partly extra-legal. Legal coercive power, which is the power of the central government and so many state governments, but used in a concentrated way, which was probably never used in India, except for a brief period of Indira Gandhi's regime, where you have union government dominates the state governments in a way that had which seemed like an old dream in India in the last quarter of a century. In the last quarter of a century, state parties and governments actually dominated the center. So that's the change. The executive dominating judiciary, uh, dominating legislature, and the leader dominating the party, um, all these remind you of uh, the 70s and 80s in Indian politics. After that, something like this had never happened before. In, this is accompanied by erosion of autonomous institutions. Those of you who have been following Indian politics would know what I'm talking about. But each one of the autonomous institution is seriously compromised. The Supreme Court famously saw a press conference being held by four sitting judges of the court who came out ostensibly to protest against what their boss, the CGI, was doing, but basically to say to the country, look, the independence of judiciary is under assault. Do something about it. This is, I mean, it, this, this has just never happened before. The kinds of things that are happening right now in the Supreme Court are once again things that can be compared only to what happened in the mid-70s when there was a talk of committed judiciary. Once again, we go back to Indira Gandhi's days. Anti-corruption agencies have been compromised, have been packed with some people who should have been investigated by these agencies, actually. They are there in anti-corruption agencies. Election Commission looks weaker than ever before in the last 25 years. I should say that Election Commission used to be a nondescript institution in India, was never known for its autonomy. But after 1991, the institution acquired autonomy. So if you compare to what happened since 1991, Election Commission hasn't been this weak ever before. All this has, been, has gone with 
extra legal use of state apparatus, use of anti-terror laws, use of uh, protection to vigilante groups. Every week you hear about some lynching, some person from minority usually uh, being killed by a crowd openly. Now, I am not saying these things never happened before, but what is so striking now is complete silence from the top, if not encouragement, if not a certain sense of protection that comes with it. There's surveillance, there's intimidation of opponents. I mean, I could go on and on and on, but, uh, and I, I should again underline that I don't think there's anything in this package which India has never witnessed before. But as a combined package, as all these things coming together at one go, this is unprecedented. This comes with the third element, namely cultural and moral legitimacy. Some of the key symbols of nationalism, Hinduism, and traditions are controlled and have been are being, have been taken over by the BJP, uh, which puts the opponents all the time on the defensive. They're constantly fighting a losing battle because the key symbols now belong to the ruling dispensation. There has been a shift in public opinion in the last 10 years or so. The entire spectrum has shifted to the right, as it were. So what would be a middle point of a drawing room conversation five years ago has completely shifted today. Within five years, drawing room conversation tenor has changed. What's a commonsensical position? What's a reasonable position? All that has shifted within five to seven years. And media control. I mean, you really have to see it to believe it. Uh, in some ways, I would say this is worse than what happened in emergency. I was young in emergency, but not so young as not to remember what was happening in emergency. Uh, yes, there was proper formal censorship, but thank God, we knew there was censorship. So when I read the newspaper, I knew I was reading a censored newspaper. Today, you think you are watching an independent television channel. And the extent of control, I mean, I don't know what's happening in Russia, but I really would like someone to compare what's happen, happening in Russian media and what's happening in Indian media, what's happening in Turkey and what's happening in India. These are the multiple mechanisms at play, from the most legitimate to the most illegitimate. The legitimate being spin-doctoring of a fairly sophisticated variety to agenda-setting. You know, what should, just when some embarrassing development takes place, that evening, you have something happening in Jammu and Kashmir, which suddenly becomes the most important thing for everyone in the media. And who cares about petrol prices? Who cares about agriculture? Who cares about farmer suicides? You know, so there is agenda setting. But apart from that, uh, there is use of state patronage. Um, I think by the time this government completes its tenure, they would have spent something close to a billion dollars in official, official accounted for advertisements. I'm not speaking of the unaccounted for things. I'm not, this is the official state money being used for propaganda of this government. 
they've already spent about 4,000 crores plus. So I presume that the next year would see some bounce. These macro and micro incentives, coercion, and very close monitoring. As I said, sitting, you know, standing here, it's very hard to describe how a government can actually monitor the smallest newspaper in some corner of that country and actually get back to the editor to say, aha, for the last six days you've run this on your front page. This is a tiny newspaper in a corner of the country. They are given that feedback. The prime minister personally monitors which newspapers did not carry his broadcast on the front page. That came out from an RTI. I mean, it came out last week that this is a list of things the Prime Minister personally monitors. Of course, Prime Minister also personally instructs camera persons about from which angle he should be photographed. He actually, I mean, this, this cameraman came and told me that he actually said the light is not good from that angle. Would you change your camera? So, so we, we're looking at something very, very unusual. Uh, image making is of a different proportion altogether right now. So this is what we are looking at, the new hegemony. Um, and we should indeed look at it as hegemony, not merely look at it as coercion. There is more to it than just coercion. What could it lead to? Just very quickly, this could lead to uh, what can only be described as competitive authoritarianism which is not pure authoritarianism. Elections do take place, will take place, but episodes of elections see competition. Otherwise, the, that, that country would look like authoritarianism. I'm not saying we've reached there, but that's the direction in which things are headed. Severe curtailment of civil liberties, crushing of dissent, bypassing of constitutional process. All these are big, we get glimpse of all this, but if we are, if we look at the direction we are headed in, that is where we are going. Non-theocratic majoritarianism, where minorities will be a second-grade citizen. Actually, Julius Ribeiro has written an article a week ago. Julius Ribeiro, the super cop, has written an article last week where he talks about, he says, look, I'm, I'm prepared to be a second-grade citizen in this country. I know I'm a Christian. You know, I mean, it's coming from someone like him who's given his life for defending this country. It really hurts. Um, there is, I don't know how many of us are aware, Indian Parliament is seriously looking at a law which would change the Citizenship Act of the country. And basically, just to summarize that act, that act for the first time changes, introduces a religion in the definition of Indian citizenship. And it says, anyone from outside is welcome, but Muslims, no, thank you. No Muslims, please. That's basically what that act is, which is being debated, discussed by parliamentary committee right now. So this is the direction in which uh, we are moving. We are looking at, in other words, not to put too fine a point on it, we are looking at a mutilation of the idea of India and the possibility that the republic may be undone by public support. You know, this is one of the most frightening possibilities, which challenges the very idea of India as a state nation. 
I said right in the beginning that I would not look at this entire range of challenges, but will focus only on one aspect, which is the diversity-related aspect, and which is what relates to the book that I spoke about. What was that argument? I've used the word state-nation several times. What does it mean? What was that argument? Why does that argument get challenged? The idea of state-nation is very simple. We asked a question, how can democracies accommodate deep diversity within a single state? There is an old answer to that. The old answer says, every state must contain within itself one and not more than one culturally homogeneous nation. That every state should be a nation and every nation should be a state. That's a classic nation-state model. So the nation-state approach to diversities is very simple, which says you should have political institutional approach that tries to make the political boundaries of the state and the presumed cultural boundaries of the nation match. There are cultural boundaries and there's a political boundary. They must match. And how do they match? They would match if there is some big, I mean, if you are lucky, if you live in Japan, there's no problem. But if there is some problem, then you pick one dominant identity and make that the center around which everything revolves. And if there is a problem, what do you do? Soft assimilation, coercion, or violence. That's how nation states have been built all over the world. This was a classic old answer. We looked at it and we said, no, there's a new political reality because many successful democratic states in the world today, and we thought of India, Canada, Spain, Belgium, these states do not use that strategy at all. Something new is happening. We call that new thing state-nation. And we said that uh, this new approach to handling diversity is actually the future of the world. This is how diversity ought to be handled. What was that new approach? That new approach was a political institutional approach that respects and protects multiple sociocultural identities, recognizes the legitimate public and even political expression of these cleavages, and mechanisms to accommodate competing or conflicting claims while fostering we-feeling for statewide political community. So if nation-state was all about assimilation and homogenization, state-nation was about accommodating diversities, giving them legitimate political expression. Just to see that more schematically, nation-state meant attachment to one cultural civilizational tradition. State-nation, on the other hand, involved attachment to more than one cultural civilizational tradition. Nation-state involved singular identity as a member of cultural community, as citizen and member of cultural community. State-nation involved multiple but complementary identities. I'm Indian, I'm Tamil, you can't ask me which one first. I'm both. So multiple but complementary identities. Political institutions were usually unitary or symmetrical federalism, which is what you saw in nation states. State nations were usually about asymmetrical federalism, which is federalism that recognized the uniqueness of each of those units and made special provisions for that. Culturally, 
Nation states are characterized by homogenization. State nations are sort of known for support for unity in diversity. Ethno-cultural divisions are not salient in nation states, but among state nations, they are salient, accepted, and democratically managed. Autonomous or regional parties in nation states, any kind of secessionist parties outlawed, regional parties are kept at a distance. In state nations, they are accepted, recognized, welcomed. So the idea behind state nation, that sort of, in a sense, the basic intuition is this, that if you have to deal with diversities in the world, the old nation-state model doesn't work. You have to shift to a new state-nation model of accommodating that diversity from the front door. And that countries like India, Canada, Belgium, Spain, they were the new models. That's what we proposed. So the question that I must ask finally is, do we need to rethink the idea of state-nation in the light of the experience of India in the last four years? I break it down into three specific questions. Does it question the core idea behind state-nation? Do we need to rethink the mechanisms of state-nation? And does it prompt a rethink of India as a model of state-nation? There are two ways of answering this question, two, 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 two extreme ways of responding to these. One is a very easy answer to say, look, state-nation is, is an abstraction. What happens in one specific country is none of my concern, doesn't matter, the model holds. It'll be easy for me to say that, but not very accurate, because state-nation is not that kind of a theoretical deductive model. It is from empirics. And what happens in the world if something's happening in Spain right now in Catalonia? I cannot ignore it. I cannot say my theory is pristine, pure, doesn't matter what happens in Spain. No, it has to reflect that. And India was not just one more example. In the state-nation theory, India was in some ways a model. India was a, an example that expanded the scope of the theory. So what happens in India cannot be incidental. The other extreme, of course, would be to say, look, what you described about India was never true in any case. India... Uh, that, that what happens in the last four or five years has simply exposed the inherent, invisible fragility of the Indian ideology. There's a book by that name uh, that it exposes an inherent fragility. And, uh, well, it was a sham anyway. Exposed, finished, thank you very much. I'm not sure if that's a good position. I'm not into, this is not the occasion to get into details of why that position is not true, but minimally what that position needs to explain is if it was a sham, why did it last the first 70 years? When Soviet Union collapsed, Yugoslavia collapsed, why is it that India holds that this enormous diversity, which was not supposed to be contained within one state, how was that done? That's something we really need to understand. So I would avoid both these extreme responses and try and look for partial corrigibility, which is to say these are legitimate questions, they need to be answered, and all the three specific questions require answer. First is, as I said, does the core idea of, nation, of state nation gets damaged? 
If you look at it, the core idea behind state-nation has a principal claim, has a secondary claim. The principal claim is that the only way of handling deep diversities within a democratic state is to go for accommodation of diversities, not streamrolling, not majoritarianism, not homogenization. To my mind, what's happened in India in the last four years doesn't question that. It doesn't for the simple reason that if, if someone could argue that what has happened in the last four years is a result of state-nation policies, then it would affect it. If someone could argue that no, India has done very well, despite giving up on state-nation approaches, that the homogenization approach works well, we have better democracy, better nation, better state, stronger state. What's wrong with it? Sure, that would be counterfactual. But that's not what's happening. We have a clear deviation from state-nation approach, which is producing just the kind of consequences the theory said it would, which is that it would weaken the country, it would weaken democracy. So if India were to, theoretically speaking, if India were to go further away from state-nation approach, uh, let's say for a moment India were to take the Sri Lankan model, which is exactly the opposite of state-nation, which is a very homogenizing model. If India were to take that, in a sense that would be uh, a negative but affirmation of the overall theory. So that principal claim holds. What gets affected is a secondary claim. The secondary claim was that this is the way things will happen in the world. This is the new approach. This is what's happening all over the world. This is the future. That gets affected slightly, but I would say, let's wait. Let's wait to see what happens in India. Let's wait to see what happens in Spain. I'm very curious, concerned, and as a political scientist, interested in what's happening in Spain right now. So let's see the outcome of what happens there before we come to a final judgment. So on the first one, I would say core idea holds more or less. What about India as an exemplar? Sure, it's not. Something has gone wrong, yes. So if democracy index meant downgrading of 89 countries, and if there was a diversity index, if there was a state-nation index, uh, sure, India should be downgraded somewhat in the last four years because that's clearly not what India has practiced in the last four years, especially on the question of religious diversity. Having said that, I think it's important for us to recognize a few other things. While on the religious diversity, the state policies have been extremely negative, on regional diversity, it's not so negative. Not that the regime doesn't want to do that. The regime has a very centralized understanding of what a nation and nationalism should be. But in many ways, the regional forces have resisted it. So in fact, that's the biggest resistance that the current regime has right now. Uh, when we looked at that map of India, that entire strip from south to the east that we looked at is a strip which, is, which has very strong regional parties. So regional political parties have resisted, even within the North Indian heartland. The resistance to BJP has come strongly from places which have regional political parties. Uh, 
So region is something that has not been streamrolled as yet. Second reason is that BJP's hegemony is not unchallenged. Yes, it's a hegemon, but I mean, almost by definition, no hegemony is complete. It's always partial, always fractured. And what fractures it currently is protests from some quarters. One is from farmers. Farmers' movements have been very strong. And as I speak, we are in the middle of a week which is, uh, which is witnessing farmers' protests throughout North and Western India. Uh, tomorrow happens to be the, the first anniversary of uh, the killing of farmers in Madhya Pradesh and Mansoor, and we are likely to witness some major protests tomorrow itself. So farmers' protests have been one of the strongest resistance to this regime for the last one year. There's youth resistance, especially among the campuses. Despite all efforts, while the regime has succeeded, uh, I'm sorry to say, the, 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 the academias, the, 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 the teachers, the higher education managers, but students they've not been able to suppress. Wherever they've tried very hard, students have resisted. There's a resistance coming from Dalit movements in the country. There was an All India Bandh a couple of months ago, which was extremely successful, surprisingly successful for the government. And there are various protests on violence against women. And most of, I mean, all the four are not prompted by political parties. So there is a resistance, there is opposition on the street, on the ground, but from different quarters. And finally, uh, the reason why we should not draw too strong conclusions about uh, India right now is that uh, next year is parliamentary election. And at the moment, it's still an open game. And every week, the game looks like tilted against the BJP. Uh, so something is happening there. I would not draw very definite conclusions, but it's an open game. That, that much we certainly should recognize. The question really is whether uh, we are looking at merely an electoral setback. A mere electoral setback would be something which is achieved by coalitions and alliance arithmetic and so on, which is uh, currently being tried. Or would we have a serious political defeat when you're dealing with hegemony uh, one is to somehow trip the hegemon in an election or in a battle. The other is to seriously question the moral and cultural legitimacy that they enjoy. So that's the thing that we really need to think hard about. Would it be former? Would it be latter? But there is difficulty. So for all these reasons, I would say India as a state nation is uh, down, but not out yet wouldn't write it off as yet. Something is happening, so we need to wait. On the third question of mechanism, I think that's where we really need to rethink. If I were to rewrite that book and read chapters again, that's where I would do a lot of rethink. Um, I think in thinking about India's experience of diversity and democracy, we allowed ourselves to be somewhat complacent about a few things. Cultural heritage, 
although in this book we didn't put too much emphasis on cultural heritage, but many of us do. The trouble with cultural heritage is that it's of a limited help in the face of modern politics. And cultural identities, that wonderful you know, identities of the kind that we take pride in, they are malleable. With serious politics, they actually can be molded. Constitutional design has had mixed results. Constitutional design is not a guarantee. Federal state nation institutions have survived, but autonomous institutions for protection of minorities have had very uneven record. And I'm not speaking only of the minority commission. Think of various pro-minority institutions and how almost every one of them has been compromised in the last four years. So institutions don't provide that strong defense as we may have imagined. State policies are excessively regime dependent. So regime changes, almost everything changes. Yes, the minorities ministry has not been abolished formally, yes. But almost the content of it has been completely transformed. So there's very little continuity of policies on such critical issues. So you can't depend on state policies. And public opinion and attitudes fluctuate and are vulnerable to media manipulation. When an onslaught of media is, takes place, then opinions and attitudes which look like very firm can be changed in three or four years. That's a sad discovery of the last four years. And one of the most, one of the things that has, which requires maximum rethink is the question of opinions and attitudes. I think we need to separate, I mean, if I were to rewrite that thing of today, I would separate soft mechanisms and hard mechanisms. You know, similar to what they do in international relations, they speak of hard power and soft power. Hard mechanisms are constitution, institutions, political parties, and soft mechanisms are identity, orientation, attitudes, opinions. I think in our understanding of state nation, we put too much emphasis on the hard mechanisms and too little on the soft mechanisms. And uh, one learning of the last four years is how critical these soft mechanisms are and how vulnerable these soft mechanisms are. To my mind, there are three deficits, I would have almost said sins, of India's soft state nation mechanisms, or I would have said sins of India's ruling elite. One, on nationalism, there has been a huge neglect. I mean, this, the, the, the attitude of the modern Indian elite has been almost that of a non-alignment to nationalism. Yes, I mean, there, there's slight awkwardness, almost embarrassment about nationalism. So the rich and very positive heritage of Indian nationalism has been given up by the English-speaking Indian elite. That's one of the biggest tragedies. Second, indifference to religion, uh, which is not what the freedom struggle was about. Freedom struggle did not, was not for theocratic state, but they were not indifferent to religion. Increasingly, you see, indifferent to, to really, I mean, over the years, a certain indifference has been cultivated, and almost a certain hostility to Hinduism has been allowed to become public culture dominant intellectual elite public culture. This has had a huge backlash, uh, which is what has resulted in where we are right now. And finally, 
complete illiteracy about our traditions. And I'm not speaking of traditions of one kind. I speak traditions of various kinds of traditions, religious and others that we have inherited. The Indian elite has been illiterate about these. To my mind, and these are things probably I'll get to speak a little more about tomorrow, I hope so. To my mind, these three deficits created a vacuum in which the propaganda machine of the BJP walked in. Walked in and converted people in ways that no one thought was possible. So, shared is the story, once again, of a liberal elite out of touch with public opinion. That's what it really happened. When Mr. Modi comes, drawing room conversations of the liberal elite had no idea what he was up to. I suspect this may have some resonance outside India. Uh, in a world with Brexit, in a world with Mr. Trump, I guess we are looking at a story which has some commonalities all over the world. That, to my mind, is a broad lesson. I did read out uh, that embarrassing paragraph from the book, which, as I said, I had drafted. But I discovered that the paragraph just after that in the book had this to say. And it was drafted not by me, but by Al Stepan. It said, the success of a, nation, of a state nation is contingent on continuous political practices. Crafting a state nation is not a one-shot affair, but continuous effort. It also reminds us that what is made can be unmade, as in the case of state nations. As in the case of nation-states, a state nation is also a politically imagined community that needs to be sustained through continuous contestation and recreation in the realm of ideas, institutions, and political practices. I know Al Stepan would have smiled. And I know Ralph Miliband, the political activist and political theorist, may have approved. Thank you. Thanks so very much. Um, that's a very rich talk you've given, and we've got a, a good chunk of time now for questions and discussion. Um, can I ask you to put up your hand, and, and when I call you, just say who you are and where you're from, and wait for the microphone so that we can all hear you. So who would like to, um, who would like to initiate our conversation? Uh, yes, this gentleman here, right here. Just just wait for the thing. Just say who you are and so on. Yeah. Uh, my name is Arjun Chavla. I'm a graduate student here at the LSE in international relations. Uh, thank you for a very enriching talk, Mr. Yadav. Um, I was wondering if you could elaborate a little more um, as to the process of naturalization and socialization of this idea of state-nation building, as to why you think that for a large part of 70 years of crafting, was it that, and as you mentioned, despite incredible propaganda and state machinery, why was it relatively easy within a span of four years to undo the work of 70 years of state nation building as it were? So was that always an abstract idea that was superficial at best and never naturalized within public opinion, firstly? And secondly, uh, would you say that within, would you then say that the diversity within the linguistic and regional sense was is still a lot more naturalized, but that religious diversity was something that was 
always a theoretical idea, but never accepted within the public opinion frame, um, as, as can be seen by the shift in conversation today. Thank you. Uh, it enables me to fill a gap, uh, something that I probably should have spoken about. You see, the word state-nation may be new, but the process is not new. In a sense, what we today, what I today call state-nation, uh, is product of at least 100 years of imagination. This is what Indian freedom struggle is all about. In the 19th century, uh, Indian elite faces a definition of nationalism, which comes and says, oh, you can't be a nation. You don't even speak the same language. You don't even know each other. How can you be a nation? They could give two responses. One response would have been to say, yes, you're right, we're not a nation. We shouldn't even try these things. Second response, as you know, was to say, yes, we are, but, but we are a nation. Despite these differences, we are one kind of nation. We have one dominant language. We have one religion. We are finding a text. And we are more like you than you think you are. So that's the second response. Uh, the third and the most robust response of Indian nationalism is to say, who told you that we need to be like you in order to be a nation? That's the, that's the wonderful response of Indian nationalism, which challenges the received definitions of what it means to be a nation. So that's, that's Gandhi, that's Nehru, that's Tagore. I mean, Tagore, was, Tagore is against nationalism. But in so many ways, he constitutes our you know, national being. These are, this is the confident response of uh, Indian nationalism, uh, which is what, so, so in a sense, what we today call state-nation is the product of modern Indian political thought, which is encapsulated in this text document called the Indian Constitution. So, so this is not something that happened overnight. It's not something which was so fragile. So, so your, your real question is, so why does it collapse within four years? One is that it's not four years. I think it's, uh, we must acknowledge that attempts to bring it down have been happening for the last 90 years. The RSS was founded in 1925. Um, and even if one were to look at more recent attempts, I think the Ramjanam Bhumi agitation is uh, 89-91. So we're looking at more than a quarter of a century when systematic onslaught takes place and where those who were to defend this republic have really nothing to offer for 20 i mean you know the demolition of babri masjid in, is 1992 in the last 25 years what has been the secular response to that i don't know so, so we're looking at a long thing. Um, what may have also contributed, and that's uh, altogether a very different conversation, is that this very rich tradition of Indian thought, modern Indian political thought, which in a sense embeds the Indian constitution, that modern Indian political thought dies a sudden death in the 1960s. So you just don't have any major political thinkers after 1960s. And sadly, political theory, 
the task of making sense of politics and theorizing about politics is shifted from the political domain to the academia. And that's a complete disaster. It's an unmitigated disaster. Uh, politics is too serious a business to be left to political scientists, <laughs> both sitting at the stage included. So, uh, so, that, that, so, so, so in a sense, that's what's happening. Your final thing about distinction between linguistic and religious. You're right. The linguistic question is very deeply embedded, and even Nehru could do nothing about it. As you know, Nehru was opposed to the formation of linguistic states, tried as he might. It didn't succeed. It happened, and it actually strengthened Indian nationalism. Religious question was always fraught after the partition experience. And, and, and I mean, you know, right from the 20s, this is a very difficult question to handle. So it's not that this was a wonderful, accepted consensus. So from 20s onwards, the Hindu-Muslim question is a very fraught question in India. Um, and it's only Mahatma Gandhi's death, his assassination, that in a sense settles it for 10, 15 years. Uh, but to my mind, the kind of attempt that the freedom struggle was, I mean, the kind of energy the freedom struggle invested in this issue is something which is simply not done in the last 30, 40 years. There's such complacence. We have Supreme Court, we have a secular constitution, all is well, things are all right. That's an approach. It just doesn't work. Maybe we'll have more to talk about it tomorrow. Right. Um, I'll just... Sh shall we... Yeah, maybe we'll Your keep call. the answers a bit shorter and sure. stick with one. Um, can I have this woman at the back here and then we'll come to you in the middle? Please. Uh, just talk into the thing and, yep. Uh, not really, but if you talk, that'll be all right. You, you carry on. Uh, thank you so much for the talk. It's really interesting. My name is Nithi Parekh. Uh, I work at the LSC uh, in a research center. So you touched upon the role of media, which I found very interesting. And I think it's true. We've seen it recently in India with the Cobra Post scandal or across the world. In Ch China is a prime example, Russia, US. Um, but in an ideal world, we would maybe restructure everything or conceive a different structure of media to not, so, as it, so as it is not commercialized. But given where we are at this point, and there's a lot of paid news, and who owns media houses in India, what can we do now to, again, re public, for the public to reclaim ownership of the media for freedom of press? Commercialized is one thing. Selling news is another thing altogether. I'm not saying, you know, to, to, to think of a media that's not commercialized would be altogether a different thing. We should think about it. But let's not say that's the only solution. You know, media gets so many privileges from the state, from public funds in India, where print continues to be dominant. They get cheap paper, cheap print. All kinds of facilities are extended. All kinds of privileges are given. Why can't some elementary conditions be imposed, a certain elementary regulation, A, that if you are found to be selling news, 
not selling advertisements, selling news, your license is off. That cross-media ownership is not acceptable. These are norms all over, the country, all over the world. Why can't we do elementary things of this kind? What Cobra Post has exposed is not just commercialization. It is basically people in media houses saying, uh, yes, give us money. We'll manage everything for you, including editorial content. Now, that's dreadful. So I think we, this can and ought to be regulated. How can you have something so large, so critical to the functioning of democracy, which is completely unregulated? And you don't need to become a socialist state in order to do that. I mean, every democracy must regulate this. And besides that, uh, the idea of a public service broadcaster. Um, I mean, these things need to be recovered. They, I mean, I don't see any way other than that. Okay. Um, can we just have this gentleman in the middle here? Just stick your paw up so that he can... Uh, no, this, this man with the jacket. Are you still with your hand up? or? Yep, just stick it up so he can see you. Uh, Ramesh Shukla is my name. I'm a visitor of the LSE. Uh, I happen to know Yogendra also. Um, it was a very uh, enlightening uh, talk. Um, <clears throat> the question I'd like to ask you is, I'm glad that you say that the India still uh, is a state nation, and it is not down, it's not, uh, it is down but not out. Uh, state nation could also be called, I mean, it's not just a side, you can, you can call state, you call it state nation, I call it multi, multinational state. Um, and the question, question that I would like to ask you is this, what is political, um, what you call uh, uh, response to, uh, um, uh, to this problem? Um, I mean, as a political, political activist yourself, yes, I'd like to ask you this, that the, uh, what political parties are doing to uh, challenge uh, the situation in India. Thanks. Thank you. So perhaps just quick. Not much. Uh, the trouble is that, uh, uh, and I mean parties that call themselves secular, their response has been most disappointing, uh, largely because uh, I think they don't know how to play once the wicket is changed. So the great success of the BJP is that it has relayed the pitch, uh, and everyone has to play on that. Uh, now, the difficulty, I mean, you know, I, mean I, I could easily say all political parties are bogus, etc. but rather than do that, I mean, let me just say why they are playing the way they are playing. A, uh, they are reactive. BJP has been proactive. They relayed the pitch and invited everyone to play on that. B, um, the reason why they are reactive is that for years and years they have been complacent, if not complicit. Remember what Congress did on Shabano in 1980s. Remember how Congress handled the Ram Janambhumi issue in the 80s and early 90s. So the so-called secular politics is actually complicit 
in, uh, in this decline which has taken place. Uh, and when not complicit, they have been practicing things which actually bring very bad name to secularism. Because secular politics in India became a proxy for holding the minorities hostage. So what calls itself secular politics is basically another name for keeping Muslims political hostage. Which is, so it's, 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 it's a very, it's an unholy contract with the Muslims. The contract is this. Um, don't ask me for education. Don't ask me for employment. Don't ask me for anything else. But I'll give you security. And in case you feel and think that you are secure, you don't need me, I'll engineer situations in such a way that you would begin to need me again. That's the unholy game played by secular politics, which stands completely exposed today. So, in other words, the secular politics needs a very serious rethink. Political parties have actually, parties which are called secular, have actually played uh, uh, either, either lazy or dirty games, which do not allow them to take on the BJP right now. Okay, um, can we have um, this person here? And after this, I might take a two or three at once, I think. Um, hello, um, I'm Meena Dhanda. I teach philosophy in Wolverhampton, and I know Yadav as a friend from many years. Uh, I, my question is really seeking clarification on uh, the distinction between nation-state and state-nation on the one question, where I'll read from your slide the last one, where you say that in state-nation there is a space for non-violent secessionists. What I want to ask is, is there also space for non-violent secession? Because it's one thing to say that it's possible that in a state nation you will allow people to have the stage and make their argument, but at the end of the day they are not going to be allowed to secede. Now, if there's two possible answers, yes or no, I'm just saying. So if it is the case that in your model of state nation there is space for secession, then I cannot see how India is a part of that. Canada maybe is a good example, not India. And if there isn't a space for secession, then I see very little difference on this score between nation-state and state-nation. Um, you're absolutely right. Uh, of the various countries that we put under the basket of state-nation, they have very different responses. So Canada is happy with non-violent secession. Uh, Spain is not. Spain is, I mean, what's happening in Spain right now is, uh, we don't know. Uh, India, definitely not. So Canada on one extreme, India on the other extreme, Spain somewhere in between, more tending towards India and not. The diff uh, so, so in the Indian experience, especially given that it's, uh, you know, the, I think partition has cast a very long shadow on India's political developments. And the anxiety on that score is very, very deep. Uh, in India, I definitely do not see uh, acceptance of a non-violent secession. Uh, that's not part of the Indian model. The question is, how is then any different? To my mind, the difference is, as I said, that was not merely secession, but also region autonomist. Uh, what has surprised every political observer about India is that in the last three decades, large number of parties 
which were very openly regional parties, which said, you know, I mean, as you know, the Telugu Desham Party, which almost in the name is Telugu Nationalism Party. These parties were not only allowed, they flourished, they did very well, and have been accommodated in a overall federal polity, which is very unusual. Uh, so the difference is on the score of regional political parties and their acceptance. And not only have they done very well, they have been part of the central uh, uh, of, of, of the union government. As you know, in the last two decades, there has been really no central government which did not have one of, uh, one, not one, in fact, many of these regional political parties playing a very critical role. So that is where India is different from the classic nation state. Uh, but you are right, on the secession score, that's no. That's strictly a no-go zone as far as India is concerned. Okay, I'm just going to try and take um, two or three. So um, this woman here, please, and then I think it was this gentleman with the jacket. Um, thank you for that insightful talk. Uh, I'm Anushna, and I'm a student in the Department of International Development. Uh, so while speaking of diversities, we often speak of religious diversities and regional diversities, linguistic diversities, uh, which are still in the realm of public debate. However, there are another set of diversities relating to gender diversities and diversities of sexualities, which do not really make it to the public discourse. And given the entire uh, populist politics, is it that only when these identities and diversities assert themselves in voting behavior will we see a recognition of these diversities? Hmm. You just keep a note there, and then um, this man here, please. Thank you very much. Rupert Wallace, member of the public. I listened very carefully to your talk, but I don't think I heard the expression foreign policy anywhere and for such a, a populous and powerful country like India I wonder whether I could ask you what as one looks at foreign policies of countries you get a very good idea of what the value system is and I think values was another word that also wasn't mentioned could you explain uh, as India of a country of over a billion people what its foreign policy is and such that what value system does it want to project for the rest of the world Okay, they're huge questions, but if you could very concisely answer them, we could get in a quick round. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, uh, you, you're absolutely right. Uh, when we s spoke of diversity and cleavages, uh, the, the expression we use is politically salient cleavages. Um, uh, different, you know, there are all kinds of hundreds and thousands kinds of social divisions in any society. Some of them get politically charged. Uh, either in voting behavior or in protests or in organize, you know, some kind of politics takes place around that. And we were interested in talking only about those uh, because th those, those things can be potential sources of challenging the nation boundaries. So the real question was about cultural boundaries and political boundaries and how they can be aligned and not aligned. And, in, and also those uh, those divisions which lend themselves to a geographical expression. 
because that challenges the nation state business. Yeah? On uh, foreign policy, you're absolutely right. I did not talk about it, uh, partly because my focus was so narrow, uh, partly also because uh, for various reasons, uh, foreign policy is not a domain of political contestation in India. Um, uh, it's almost, it, it's, it's rare for an opposition party to question foreign policy of the ruling dispensation. And uh, even when it does, it is even more rare for that to find any public mobilization. Um, that's why uh, while there are differences, but those differences are articulated in very, very nuanced and subtle ways, unlike the US politics where foreign policy is a critical political question. Uh, in India, it's simply not. Uh, what are the values that guide it? I'm not the best person to answer that question. I, the, one thing that strikes me is this. Uh, Seventy years ago, when India had much less power, much less financial power, much less uh, strategic uh, position, and much less uh, um, military power, uh, it had values, and they were hurt. Today, in terms of its economic might, in terms of its uh, military power, I think it's fair to say that India is way up in the ladder. But I don't see my prime minister, and I'm not speaking just of this prime minister, uh, but I, I think the voice of India in terms of articulating values on the global stage, I think is far more feeble today than it was 70 years ago. It's not for me to explain this paradox, but I just wanted to state it. Okay, um, look, if we can just do some really quick questions and some really quick answers, we can get in another couple. So um, this, this man here and then this woman over here. Um, just super quick, if you can. Right. Uh, just as a uh, hi, I'm Pratik. I'm a PhD student at King's College, and I'm a great fan. If there's a video on YouTube of you, I've watched it. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's a real and uh, it's just <laughs> one up on me. I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, just uh, when you talk about the state nation, I'm just wondering. You know, there's this level that we're missing, which is the municipality. And I know the Swaraj India fought the municipal elections, and I was just wondering. Can we take something from the Barcelona in Comu experiment? Can we take something that can revitalize the municipality sphere, the local election sphere? And can, will, is it always destined, that sphere of governance, it is, is it always destined to be a layer which is only meant to clean the streets and like do all this depoliticized uh, sphere? Or can it be repoliticized and can it be a... You know, we already... Okay. All right. Good. No, no, just because we want to get some more in. I mean, I think it's clear. Municipal and perhaps Barcelona. And um, here, this person with the pink jacket. Thank you. Uh, I'm Samira, also a great fan. In the interest of time, um, it, it was very disheartening to me that... I what a fan you are, but... Yeah, no, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm disheartened that demonetization did not dent the BJP's reach as much as it should have. As a political scientist, why do you think 
BJP managed to come to power still in all the elections that it went to. And, and, a, more, and, a, and a more general question, when there is a bad policy, how long does it take for uh, the results of that policy to percolate into electoral losses? Is this normal or is India or is this specific case very different? Okay, now if you can just hold it that thought, I'll, ju I'll just get this gentleman because he's been waiting to, if, just, if you make it quick, we can squeeze another one in. Thank you. My name is William Crawley. I'm at the Institute of Commonwealth Studies and formerly a long time ago with the BBC World Service. Um, my question, two very quick ones, if I may. First of all, about the position of the BJP. You talk about hegemony, um, but you talk about challenges to it. You don't mention the RSS at all. I mean, one's had a picture presented to the BJP as uh, uh, Mr. Modi himself has distanced himself from the RSS, and so that the BJP is becoming more, more, more moderate. Um, would you accept that, um, or would you give a different view? My other question is about public service broadcasting uh, and the, the media control. Uh, in the 90s, when independent television stations were first coming on, there was real uh, concern uh, and a real pressure among broadcasters and, and civil society in India uh, for uh, uh, autonomous, uh, autonomous Prasar Bharati. But at that time, the government said, well, we have to have our own voice. Now, do they need to have their own voice now if they dominate the independent media so much? Okay, okay. Modi and the RSS um, broadcasting. Uh, uh, demonetization, it is truly a very unusual case of a political part, of an economic policy, which is a complete disaster. Uh, this is almost like someone picking a plier and doing eye surgery with that. It's as bad as that. Uh, and the funny thing is that this government did not consult even its own chief economic advisor before doing this. So, um, but it's very unusual, and it shows you the autonomy of politics. Uh, something like this could have, should have bombed anywhere in the world. I can't imagine anyone retaining the prime minister's position in Britain or in many countries having done this kind of a thing. Uh, but uh, I think what it demonstrates is that, that the political consequences, you know, what Mr. Modi did very shrewdly was to plug into that angst about some rich people. So he actually he plugs into a class divide. Uh, um, and everyone, I personally traveled a lot during those days, and they would say, yeah, I st stood for eight hours, came back, that bank manager is a rascal, uh, but Mr. Modi is trying to do something nice. You know, he, so, so there was some mythical uh, ultra-rich who were being targeted. And everyone participated in that. However, the, I've been tracking opinion polls on that carefully. Uh, in the last six months, uh, it's completely switched. Now it's uh, seen to be a bad policy. It took time, and uh, it takes a very smart political player like him to convert that disaster into a, a capital for himself for a short period. Uh, we don't know, I mean, you know, we should not think of any kind of a law that all these things eventually lead to because the last instance may be too long and in the last instance all of us are dead. So we don't know. Uh, um, on that uh, question of uh, uh, local bodies, uh, Panchayati Raj and municipality, the difficulty is, uh, the, the reason why it doesn't become the pivot of 
alternative politics is a as you would know um, these local bodies do not have funds they do not have functionaries they do not have functions and this is government of india's official language the government of india in its own report says they don't have funds functions and functionaries what are they doing you know without all these three um, that's why so 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 much of the contest about i mean the question really should be why do people contest these elections when they have none of these three um, it it becomes it it's it's all about a certain cloud that you wield it has nothing to do with actual functioning of local government um and that's one of the reasons it doesn't become uh uh center of alternative politics the other difficulty that we don't look at you know while we all romanticize local government and local elections and grassroots democracy um to my mind uh, the local panchayat election the village elections they probably involved highest per capita corruption um in per capita terms the amount spent on these local elections is astonishing and uh, as people trying to put a little toe in alternative politics we realize that local elections are the most difficult just because of money i mean this is this is just huge money being spent in one village people could spend a million rupee to be a village sarpanch with no functions functionaries or funds so 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 that's a different thing on uh, rss uh, rss is very i mean i should have used the word sangh parivar in many occasions uh, instead of, i mean so 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 you're right the expression bjp in many places where i spoke about it should have been bjp in sangh parivar so the entirety in many especially on the ideological questions especially on the uh uh on the questions of uh, public opinion uh rss uh, is very much part of that overall setup so i should have been more careful in talking about it on the public service broadcaster uh, i mean i'm sure someone should write a phd <laughs> on the prasar bharti dream and what happened to it so in 1977 india officially says yes we need a public service broadcaster the government brings a law and how every bit of that law is shred and sent to dustbin is the story of india's public service broadcaster the final thing happened a couple of uh i think 6 months ago when by mistake someone happened to be not 100% aligned with mr modi he was probably 98% aligned but not 100% and what happened to him thereafter you know so 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 really the story of uh, prasar bharti is uh, um a story of how a law does not help you unless there is a political will to sustain and support it and that political will happened only in two snatches uh with uh, 1977 79 janata party at that point you actually had that will to try and institute you know given the popularity of bbc in india the idea was to have a bbc for india you know that was the real dream uh and second when jaypal reddy was the minister that this is this is i think in the mid 90s that is the second period when there was a real drive and an attempt but apart from that there has been none um you are right to ask why the government needs one 
when they have everything going for them in the media. But you know, it's a rhetorical question. You know, why would they not have everything plus everything plus everything? That's what they want. Well, I think I should wind up our session. It's really been great. Um, thank you very much for what you've um, presented to us. I just want to pick out two things that struck me. Um, the first was that there was a general story about the threat of de-democratisation, you know, and students of politics are interested in democratisation, but now more and more I think what you say fits with a, a literature that's coming out about de-democratisation. But what normally happens in that literature, which is very new, is we look at countries which are only shallowly institutionalised democracies, so it's Turkey and it's Russia, and so on. And what's very, very interesting about your case is that, you know, the Indian case is as institutionalised, as deeply institutionalised, as all but the most long-standing democracies. So it, it, it foreshadows something very ominous, I think, for the established democratic world if these trends continue. And the second thing that struck me about it was your, your contribution about the... Um, dangers facing the Indian model of accommodating diversity, what you're calling a state nation. And, and there too, I mean, as your examples show, this is something that affects not just the developing world, but in many ways it's central to where we are now. I mean, the European Union itself has few things to reach for as a model, and India is perhaps one of them, a multilinguistic, multi-ethnic state. Um, and yet, as we can see in Europe, not just in Britain, there's a huge problem facing it there too. So I wanted to just end by thanking you, not, not just for the insightful analysis of India, but also for this resonance, not just for the shallowly democratised countries, but also more generally for those of us who have the benefit of living in more deeply democratised countries. Can I ask you to join me in thanking our wonderful speaker, Yagendri <laughs>